This man's legal name is Flavor Flav. Counselor, I'll allow it. Yeah, boy! We're, we're, we're surrounded by super powerful forces. Once they get you in their jails, they can figure out ways of keeping for a long time, Caesar. The workers don't have the vote. It can only be attributable to human error. The new immigrants in many places, many of them are not citizens. Most of them don't speak the language. You are now tuned into Fear of a Border Planet. Welcome back. Good to be back. Ready to record. Good to I'm be excited back. to jump back into it. You know, it's been two months. As you can see, we record this podcast at a breakneck <laughs> speed. I don't know whose ears are strong enough to consume all this content at once. I think our last episode was so long that we wanted to wait until people finished the episode before <laughs> releasing the next one. Exactly. See, don't blame us for having episodes that are too long. We're really, you know, it's like the way a snake eats. They eat one giant animal like every six months. That's how you consume Fear of a Border Planet. The white wizard is cunning. He walks here and there, they say. There's an old man, hooded and cloaked. Yeah, not as cunning as the actual White Wizard, but this is Carrie Martin, a.k.a. the White Wizard. Who else do we have? Got Jami here, a.k.a. Jom the Astute. Good to talk to you guys again. Also got Nelson the Mayan here recording with y'all, a.k.a. El Comandante de Cuscatlan, Radio Ramon, the Cannabis Kami, etc., etc., uh, excited for this episode. Uh, this is a you know a darling of mine, I think, uh, and also just you know excited to be back with these knuckleheads again, recording some good podcasts. Yeah, Nelson, credit where credits due. This episode, this genius episode concept was your idea. Never would have thought of the co- the connection between deported dissidents, including Marcus Garvey, and their hip hop namesake. The one and only Black Star. You know, Black Star super fans, so I can't, like, <laughs> all credit goes to Yasin and Talib. And Marcus Garvey, you know. Shout out to the OG. Yeah, he had some bars. And while we're spotlights on you, Nelson, should we include one of your other aliases that we just added to my Twitter? Your Twitter handle is Digger. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's like an official alias yet. That's kind of what I was using because Twitter wouldn't let me put Nelson the Mayan. I don't that's know. That's weird. I should... <laughs> Why is that hate speech? I don't know. There's another Nelson the Mayan out there. Yeah. You don't, know Nelson, you, don't, you don't know the OG Nelson the Mayan? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few of us. We have a club. We meet every week. Maybe you could be the first Nelson the Mayan on Threads, the the new social media. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, Twitter's kind of dying, anyways. <laughs> Take this over to Threads. And this is Ramis. I still don't have an AKA, so I think what I've decided to do is every episode, I'm gonna reveal a name I went by back when my rap career was alive. So taking it all the way back to the eighth grade, oh boy. my first rapper name was R Dude. R Dude. They last long. They lasted for one song, but I'll, I'll leave dude. you with that right now. Ramis, aka R Dude, short lived but a, a strong name. You are R Dude. 
I don't know. Do you ever throw that around with any A and R's? Like I bad. think they might have seen something. Hey, there. if you if you heard about this R dude who who disappeared from the scene, now you know where you went. How do you spell that? Is it just the letter R? You need the hyphen. It's R dash D O O D. D O O D. Yeah, because he's what dude. That's his. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. But you need the hyphen. Dang, a, tri- a triple entendre, triple entendre there. <laughs> Maybe next time you can steal one of Nelson's <laughs> aliases because I don't think you've done that. I haven't. You're right. Prayed You're right. I have plenty. Two of us. Be sure to check us out. You can find us on find us on a lot of places. For starters, you can find us on Apple and Spotify by searching Fear of a Border Planet. You can also check us out on Twitter at Border Planet Pod. Uh, you can also find us on our website, borderplanetpod.wordpress.com. Now, if you want us to have a website that doesn't have <laughs> wordpress.com in it, maybe you can just send us a check. <laughs> let me dive right in to our serious topic of the day and i've been excited for this one we're talking about deported dissidents what do i mean when i say deported dissidents i mean more broadly the use of the u.s immigration and deportation regime to suppress speech and activism this is some shit dates back to the alien and sedition acts heard of those 1798, we were afraid that non-citizens were drumming up disloyalty inside the country, uh, especially um, sympathy with the French, God forbid. Our second president, John Adams, signed into law these Alien Sedition Acts that raised requirements for citizenship from five to 14 years and authorized the president to deport non-citizens and arrest and imprison them for printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing about the government. So we didn't make it like a decade as a republic before we were saying, how can we get rid of pesky foreigners who say mean (laughs) things about our government? Fast forward about 100, 120 years, you had President Woodrow Wilson in another period of fear of foreigners, talking about World War One, there was a lot of fear during that time about foreign communists, anarchists, other political dissidents. And so there is this uh, series of raids called the Palmer Raids, named after the attorney general under Woodrow Wilson. His name is Mitchell Palmer, uh, who teamed up with our boy, J. Edgar Hoover, esteemed asshole to round up hundreds of non-citizen anarchists and other political radicals and deport them en masse to places like Russia and other countries. This is actually depicted in a like pretty mediocre movie about J. Edgar Hoover called J. Edgar, which stars uh, Leo DiCaprio in the titular role. I've seen this movie. It's, it's not very good. And it does criticize J. Edgar Hoover, but maybe not quite enough. I couldn't find the scene that features him deporting people in the Palmer raids, including Emma Goldman, who we'll get more into. But I'll just give you a taste from this trailer.
yeah, I'm not sure that J. Edgar Hoover was ever a great man because he was busy in his 20s rounding up, you know, Russian political leftists to detain them at Ellis Island and put them on boats abroad. So not something I'm a big fan of. But really, you know, it continues today. Uh, not to cut you off, I was just speculating. Which Leo DiCaprio character is more racist? J. Edgar Hoover or Calvin Candy from Django and <laughs> right. Chain? Yeah, top five Who's racist worse? Leo DiCaprio characters. Yeah. Uh, Wait, Wolf of Wall like Street. really good at playing racist. In The Revenant, he never even encounters, like, another human being, right? Or, <laughs> no, does he encounter... a? Well, his son I was, he, he had like a son with a native woman. Oh, okay. He has a son no. with a native woman. Oh, because that, that gives him a pass. Yeah. He's definitely not racist. Which is, yeah, as we all know, proximity to people of color it makes you less racist. Right, right. right. Even if it's just what about one. the Departed? Were they racist in The Departed? In The Departed? Oh, yeah, definitely. They're I mean, from Boston. Boston. They're like They're Boston, Boston yeah. Irish gangsters yeah whitey bulger yeah no there's I mean, definitely like, racism in that movie. yeah the whole movie was just a bunch of white irish gangsters yelling at each <laughs> yeah. other well gangsters and cops yeah so i mean he redeemed himself by not like yeah completely ratting out pros but i'm not sure that's redemption <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if i forgive any actor for embodying j edgar hoover anyway moving on um and there will be more j edgar references later in this episode uh, so, you know, following these Palmer raids that happened in the 10s and 20s, you had more uh, immigration enforcement activity against non-citizens who were just speaking up about rights. There's a New Zealander uh, union leader from the Great Depression era, the 1930s, named Harry Bridges, who was stalked for years by U.S. immigration officials who tried to deport him for labor organizing. Then you saw under Nixon, he loved to use the immigration system uh, to get rid of pesky dissenters. He denied a visa to this uh, Belgian communist radical named Ernest Mandel in a famous case that went up to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can deny him because you're, we're allowed to exclude communists and other people with ties to communism. That's legit. So his case became this precedent that's still upheld today, that under law, we bless the exclusion of these so-called political radicals. Nixon also saw the deportation proceedings against John Lennon, who had a lot of anti-Vietnam protests, so fell into disfavor with the Nixon administration. Even denied a visa to the widow of W.E.B. Du Bois. So Nixon was pretty trigger happy when it came to deporting dissidents. This has not died down at all. The modern immigration law contains many different mechanisms for deporting dissidents. With the war on terror, you saw the expansion of this, quote, material support of a terror group, ground of inadmissibility. You saw this with extreme vetting under the Trump administration. And you also see the capacity to exclude people and deport people for their speech reach its apex in today's world with social media, the immigration, the feds being able to search through people's social media profiles when planning 
enforcement actions, search pe through people's phones at the border, the means by which our immigration system can thought police and thought exclude has only gotten greater. It's really terrifying, honestly. We've got a few scholars who do amazing work in this field. One of them is a historian named Julia Rose Kraut. Another is a law professor named Alina Das with her clinic at NYU actually has a website. It's called immigrantrightsvoices.org where they track instances of immigration enforcement against free speech. And they've tracked over a thousand examples of surveillance, fines, detention, deportation, and criminal prosecution targeted against non-citizens for their critical speech and dissent. In a kind of telling gesture, under the Biden administration, you had DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas issue a new guideline saying that a non-citizen's exercise of First Amendment rights cannot be a factor in immigration enforcement. So, you know, it's one of those, it's a good policy, but okay, why did you need to implement this policy? Because in the present day, under the Biden administration, people are still being targeted. Non-citizens are still being targeted for their speech. This is not a vestige of the past. Not to mention, you have the main arm of immigration enforcement, the Department of Homeland Security, that's also been weaponized to suppress dissent. You saw this in the late years of the Trump administration. You saw DHS goons being rolled out against George Floyd protesters. It's crazy. You had scenes in the streets that looked like a freaking dystopia. You also have immigration enforcement used against dissenters in people's own countries who've come to the United States. So think about any time a non-citizen makes a political asylum claim and think about how many claims like that are denied. Think about the astronomically high asylum denial rates, especially that you have in certain immigration courts. How many of those are dissidents in their countries of origin who our government is sending back to regimes that will mistreat and persecute those people based on their political thought? This is not something that's gone away. This is your taxpayer dollars at work to punish people punish foreigners who have the bravery to speak up or who have had the bravery to flee their countries for speaking up there. Ramos, I'm going to pass the ball to you to talk a little bit about why this legally hasn't stopped, why this is allowed by our crooked courts to go on. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, behind all of these deportations and behind all of these raids and, and kind of political stunts is laws that not only allow these deportations to happen, but affirmatively enable them to happen. And this goes all the way back to uh, the Constitution. I mean, the, written in the Constitution is that, you know, a little piece that says Congress shall have the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Um, tiny little sentence that courts have over time come to interpret as what we now call the plenary power doctrine, essentially saying that when it comes to immigration, Congress has all the power in the world that it wants to kind of draw its borders and keep people out and let people in. In practice, Congress has shared that power with the president and the executive branch. But what that means is that 
the legislative branch and the executive branch have this unbounded power over immigration, and that kind of leaves the judicial branch to the side, essentially deferring to whatever the whatever Congress or whatever the president wants when it comes to immigration priorities. So this isn't just a matter of J. Edgar Hoover, Woodrow Wilson, Richard Nixon wanting to deport a communist and going ahead and doing it. This is them, quote unquote, enforcing the laws of the land. These are laws that have been passed by Congress that explicitly say, go ahead and, and deport whoever you deem to be a danger to the, you know, the United States government. Um, whether that's political or physical or, or, or anything like that. These are laws that have been allowed by the courts because the Constitution hundreds of years ago had a little piece in it that said that Congress shall establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Um, and on top of that, in order to reinforce that power grab, Congress has over time even passed laws preventing federal courts from even hearing immigration-related issues, issues related to kind of their deportation laws. And so now, you know, as we've seen in so many different contexts in the immigration world, you really have uh, this uncontrollable, from a rule of law perspective, immigration enforcement apparatus that just reflects the political wills of, of Congress and of the executive branch. And as we have come to see over the last decades and, and even centuries, Political will, when it comes to immigration, is not a left or right issue. It is inherently exclusionary. Mm-hmm. No matter how liberal the Democratic president you have in office is, deportations will still happen. There will still be immigration rates. There will still be an ICE, an INS, a Border Patrol, whatever you call it. And so that political will manifests in law. I saw this really good quote uh, recently, and I, I hate that I forgot who said it. But um, You're just, you you're know, just the, claiming it as your own. I'm claiming it. So I, you know, five minutes ago, I thought of this amazing quote. It said, (laughs) the law is where power announces its victories. Um, Unfortunately, in the immigration context, and I guess in most contexts, those aren't necessarily our victories, like the people speaking on this podcast. They're the victories of of white supremacists and nationalists. and, and, And what we see now and what we've seen since the very beginning of the country, um, going back to, like Gary said, the Alien and Sedition Acts, what we see is racist political will being manifested in law and not being checked by the courts or by any other entity because the constitution somehow explicitly says this power shall remain unchecked. Ramos, can I just draw out what you mean by this plenary power doctrine for those who aren't familiar? So like, for example, if I'm trying to apply for social security benefits and I get denied and the government says they're denying it because I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. That's why I don't get Social Security. I can challenge that in court, right? Right, exactly. And, and you, you have so many benefits and kind of services provided by the U.S. government um, that uh, that are reviewable, that you can you know essentially claim a right to in, in some form or another. But when it comes to immigration, the Supreme Court and and the courts under it have consistently said that, especially. For people outside of the U.S., there is no right to enter the United States. There is no right to that visa. There's no right to that immigration benefit. In fact, some of the constitutional rights that we enjoy uh, every day don't necessarily apply to the the, uh, immigration context. There's cases um, that, you know, Carrie mentioned and uh, cases from the kind of mid-20th century, especially where communists and anarchists are deported 
simply because they are communists and anarchists uh, and despite the obvious First Amendment issues involved with, you know, advocating for, you know, a different political system, the Supreme Court has upheld those deportations and upheld the laws that allowed those deportations. And so, so really immigration has been carved out as a, as a kind of gray area in terms of the application of constitutional and other rights. So Nelson and Jami, why don't you tell us about our favorite deported dissident, Mr. Garvey? Absolutely. I mean, Marcus Garvey, you know, you know, one of the main figures that kind of inspired the idea for this episode and, you know, the connections that we have with our musical profile for uh, this entry with uh, Black Star. You know, Garvey is one of the more famous cases of the folks who uh, had the system weaponized against them because of the work that they were doing. Marcus Garvey, you know, fairly famous name, but for anybody who doesn't know, a Jamaican civil rights activist who, you know, originally came over to the country in his youth, founded the United Negro Improvement Association in uh, 1914 in the United States. Or no, he founded that in Jamaica, my bad, in 1914, and then 1916 brought it here to New York City. Marcus Garvey popularized the idea of Pan-Africanism, you know, the idea that folks kind of separated throughout the diaspora all over the world through, you know, the legacy of slavery and colonialism need to stick together you know wherever you landed up in still solidarity between all folks of african descent and that's an idea that has very much been very influential throughout radical movements for self-determination and freedom from white supremacy you know black panthers definitely ran with that it's an idea that has since permeated our culture right you know he was very much in favor of not only self-determination but also uh segregation and separation just on this kind of tip that after everything that um you know white supremacy has inflicted on black people throughout the world um that it's just not a good idea for white and black people to mix garvey even controversially met with some clan members and they were on like similar wavelengths like yes let's split up (laughs) Let's not oh, man. have any interaction. You know, we're not for integration. Like, clearly, you guys don't like us. We don't like you right. kind of thing. Also, he was just working for um, black self-determination and empowerment and, you know, cultural, political, and economic forums, trying to uh, empower black communities to be more self-reliant. And, and then, you know, the Black Star Line, which is the famous namesake for the group um, was a shipping line that he started in order to encourage that sort of black self-determination and black empowerment, focusing on, you know, moving goods and services between black communities, but, you know, in the United States, Africa, et cetera, and people as well. Cause he was very much in favor of like, he was the back to Africa guy basically. So, you know, trying to encourage black folks in the United States to just leave the country and quit this whole racist nightmare that they were living in, go back to Africa. You know, it's a controversial idea again, but it still comes from this place of trying to push back against white supremacist systems and encourage Mm -hmm. self-determination, self-reliance within black communities, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. So what happens with the black star line? Infiltrated by the FBI. Damn. (laughs) Uh, again yeah (laughs) 
sort of a, a running theme that you might pick up on whenever we're talking about movements that run counter to the dominant white supremacist narrative somebody who's trying to encourage self-reliance and empowerment within the black community that's not really going to fly uh under j edgar hoover's or you know the fbi in general but especially under j edgar hoover's fbi and that you know eventually they infiltrated and you know slowly started to tear it apart from the inside eventually were able to they were able to get marcus garvey convicted of mail fraud um for distributing black star line investment pamphlets depicting a boat they didn't own so that was like that's like this on the equivalent of like getting you know al capone on tax evasion charges right. you know just like not actually what we're talking about but that's you know the the way that we were able to convict you and get you deported yeah this guy spends two years in a federal prison and gets deported to jamaica because he sends out a flyer depicting a boat that they were in the process of buying, but hadn't purchased yet. That's just disgusting. Is that uh, equal yeah. treatment under the law? That's bullshit. I think our listeners should be able to pick up on the fact that it was not really about the boat or the picture of the boat. More about the work Garvey was doing within the community. Though I think they literally did sabotage some of his boats. Like, I think mm -hmm. someone from the FBI became very involved in the the shipping boats of the Black Star Line and became close confidant of Garvey to the point that this FBI informant is like on the boat. There's this guy mm -hmm. James Wormley Jones, an intimate of Garvey who sabotaged the boat by throwing foreign matter into the fuel, damaging the engines. Like, that's nice. That We always know that our government is out here to, like, support the economy and small business. And right. Lord almighty. You'd think ultra-capitalist country like us. You would think somebody starting their own shipping line. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a classic example of will put on the, the guise of free country and equal opportunities and whatnot, but if you get too close to making any real impact, then we're going to infiltrate and, and sabotage right. it. Yeah, Like this is around the same time Shut as the Tulsa down. massacre, Black Wall Street. Hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of just tearing down Black success, it's awful. Sort of a running theme, I feel like. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> in America, not often associated with the immigration system, but here we are. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just another way, you know, mm -hmm. like because I think people often tend to associate immigration issues with like people coming from Latin America because that's sort of where a lot of the media attention goes to the southern border, right? You know? But Ramos, you want to profile another deported dissident for us, Emma Goldman? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I had heard of Emma Goldman, but you know, preparing for this podcast was really the first time that I, I took a, a deeper dive into Emma Goldman's story. And it's kind of like that Shaq meme that's going around. It's like, I apologize. I really wasn't familiar with your game. Uh, it's just like, it's, it's an amazing story. I mean, this Emma Goldman born in, I guess, what was then the Russian Empire, now Lithuania um, in, in the late-ish 1800s comes to the to the US um, I think with her sister after threatening to drown herself in the river if she doesn't you know if her, her dad doesn't let her go 
makes her way to New York in the late 1800s and literally almost from day one of being in the U.S. kind of enters the fold of, of kind of the more radical communities in New York when, you know, the economic crises of the late 1800s hits. Uh, she is making speech after speech about uh, economic opportunity, uh, I think is charged with inciting a riot for, for telling people to take bread from, you know, kind of the moneyed class if they don't give it to you. That's badass. Um, yeah, it, this continues. I mean, it's not just that speech that caused controversy, but, but really Emma Goldman makes a name for herself as, as one of the leading radicals and anarchists in, in the U.S. And then um, the U.S. gets involved in the First World War. Woodrow Wilson establishes the selective service, you know, the draft, uh, and Emma Goldman is one of the, you know, more outspoken opponents to the draft, encourages people to avoid uh, joining the draft and is then, uh, you know, arrested and, and convicted of violating what I think was the Espionage Act at the time, is thrown in jail for, for two years for advocating or encouraging people to avoid the draft. Uh, and after those two years, she is swept up in what Carrie mentioned earlier, the Palmer Raids, um, which is a, kind of a, a mass um, arrest and, and deportation of communists, anarchists, and other kind of anti-U.S. radicals, so the, so the federal government says. And, you know, publicly, she uh, expressed pride in her deportation, you know, kind of a badge of honor, but, you know, privately expressed pretty great dismay that, you know, where, where she grew up, you know, her real formative years, where she came into her own as a radical and as an anarchist, um, that life is now behind her. Um, and she returned to, to Russia and moved around after that um, a good amount and I believe died somewhere around Toronto, Canada, but, uh, but lived a, a quite amazing life as a, as an outspoken anarchist and free speech activist radical uh, in the New York city community back in the, in late 1800s and early 1900s. It just lays bare how desperate our government is to get rid of anyone who like scares them. It just makes the government, it makes the U S look like so cowardly that they can't tolerate a verbal bomb thrower like Emma Goldman. Mm -hmm. And J. Edgar Hoover was quoted as saying that Emma Goldman is beyond doubt. He was speaking about Emma Goldman and, and Alexander Berkman, which is one of Emma Goldman's like earlier uh, kind of collaborators. Uh, they are beyond doubt two of the most dangerous anarchists in this country and return to the community this was while they were in jail. Return to the community will result in undue harm, um, which is just absurd given Emma Goldman was essentially, you know, a public speaker. Well, Jami, do you want to talk about a couple more modern examples? Absolutely. Let's start with Jean Montreval, who was a Haitian American activist um, who was deported to Haiti in 2018. He was convicted of a drug offense and spent five years in prison. He's since turned his life around and became a successful businessman and immigrant rights activist. He's also a father of four U.S.-born children. Jean Montreval has been a leader in the immigrant rights movement since 2005. Before his deportation, he was an active member of Judson Memorial Church and a co-founder of the New Sanctuary Coalition in New York City. 
In January 2018, federal immigration authorities revoked Jean Montreval's permission to live in the United States as part of a high-profile, essentially targeted attack against uh, high-profile immigrant rights activists. After his deportation, a petition by the Montreval family to stop his deportation gained nearly 40,000 signatures, but immigration officials nonetheless deported him to Haiti, um, as we know, a country of crisis. And he had not uh, been living in Haiti for over 30 years to that point. He's returned to the United States more than three years after his deportation to Haiti in 2018. And since returning, uh, he has filed a federal lawsuit against the federal immigration officials for deporting him in retaliation against his constitutionally protected activism. Um, and has and he has been granted a 90-day period of special interest parole, permitting him to enter the country while he pursues longer-term avenues to remain with his family in New York City as conditions continue to deteriorate in Haiti. He was pardoned by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam in 2021 after he'd already been deported, and that pardon is what enabled him to come back to the to States. Come back. But then he was like still in proceedings. He was basically paroled back in and still in proceedings until like extremely recently when they finally basically closed his proceedings. It, like this this guy faced a decade plus long battle of right. trying to get back to slash remain in the country, which was extremely conspicuously after his decades of immigrant rights activism. Definitely very targeted. Um, also, just additionally sad, the fact that he is a father of four children mm-hmm. is just another way to kind of under undercut and undermine the black family, taking the father figure out of the home, just under pretenses of charges that are really like minuscule in, in the grand scheme of things. Right. Moving to Ravi Ragbir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ravi Ragbir uh, is also was also a New York resident, immigrant rights leader. Uh, he was granted three years of deferred action, allowing him to stay in the United States and fight for permanent immigration relief. The settlement is part of the first as part of a First Amendment lawsuit filed by Ragbir in conjunction with several other immigrant justice organizations, accusing. ICE of targeting and retaliating against activists. In January 2018, Ragbeer was detained during a check-in with ICE and was ordered deported. Just, I don't know where it ends, you know, and it makes me wonder, you know, where are all the, uh, the freedom of speechers that, that get up in arms every time that there's right. some sort of uh, quote-unquote um like attack on your freedom of speech, but then instances like this, you know, those same people aren't, are not advocating for the freedom of speech. And it has real implications on people's livelihoods and their liberty. You you definitely hear the freedom of speechers talk about of both sides of their mouth in terms of protecting the rights to say bigoted things and shutting up when you know, bigoted policies get used to, used against people who speak their minds. 
those two examples are just some of the more glaring ones of seriously involved activists who are extremely explicitly targeted by immigration officials. And I wanted to highlight one more before we get into the fun stuff. Um, so I used to, when I was in college, I went to college in Vermont, University of Vermont. And when I was there, especially during my senior year, I was involved with a group that organized migrant dairy farm workers throughout the state of Vermont, mostly from Mexico and Central America, a community of about 1500 workers throughout the state. And this organization, Migrant Justice, had already done a bunch of great public campaigns that enacted really great uh, policy changes in the state of Vermont and with the companies buying up a lot of the dairy products that this, that this workforce was instrumental to making. But because of the group's success, they were very explicitly and aggressively targeted by ICE. And the group called Migrant Justice ended up filing a, co a civil complaint against ICE called Migrant Justice v. ICE. This complaint alleges that ICE had targeted and detained no fewer than 25 migrant justice advocates, that they had planted an informant in basically a mole inside migrant justice meetings, that someone posing as a volunteer and activist was in the room for migrant justice meetings and was feeding information back to ICE on who the primary activists were also accuses the Vermont DMV of sharing information with ICE about these uh, about the activist's identity. Numerous migrant justice activists being detained with ICE agents saying like, oh, you know, we're coming for your friend next, so-and-so, because we knew, you know, he's involved in this organizing. But, you know, like in the Ravi Rugbier situation and like in this situation, a lawsuit against ICE resulted in a settlement. So even though you've got plenary power doctrine saying a lot of the stuff is permissible under immigration law and immigration enforcement, uh, maybe we see some examples of the feds giving in because their conduct is so egregious that they feel like they really could be on the hook for this. Because I ICE would not be settling these cases unless they thought they had a chance of losing in a court of law. So I can't tell you 100% what the legal landscape is, but ICE has settled some First Amendment disputes. So keep filing them. And let me just say, you know, before we, we move on to greener pastures, <laughs> um, uh, this, I mean, we've only highlighted a handful of you know, deported dissidents, but I just, I can't help but mention like all the activists who never were because of this just right. overwhelming immigration system, right. right? Like I've had so many you know clients or people I've worked with who, because of what was done to them by the government, want to speak out and would be so, so persuasive and impactful but they're just afraid of, uh, you know, what the feds would do to them because of their immigration status that, that they don't speak up um, and, and that they feel like they can't speak up. And just like from an organizing perspective, it's just 
has hampered so much of immigrant rights advocacy and government misconduct um, advocacy where, you know, fear is really the law of the land, um, where there's so much potential and so much activism and expression um, and hope that's stifled simply out of fear of, of this deportation regime. And it really, really just you know, saddens me that we have these handful of, of sad stories, but all the stories of hope and uh, empowerment uh, are missing because of this overwhelming sense of fear. That's real talk. Well said, yeah. Okay, enough of enough of the sad stuff. Let's uh, let's let's play a little music now. What is the black star? Is it the cat with the black shades, the black car? Is it shining from very far to where you are? It is commonplace and different, intimate and distant, fresher than an infant. Black, my family thick, like that strap molasses. Star on the rise in the oh, eyes man. of the man. Black Star. A fantastic rap duo made up of who is now Yasin Bey, but what was then known as Most Def, the mighty Most Def, mm-hmm. and Talib Kweli. This really feels like one of those, like, all the planets aligned at the same time situations where, you know, these two fantastic, you know, Brooklyn-born rappers come together, drop this groundbreaking album, and, you know, stay in touch, but don't make, don't really make music um, for the most part for another, like, 20, what, 25 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this moment. Uh, this this Black Star album made by this Black Star group that really, to me, like changes the shakes the foundations of hip hop and really changes the direction hip hop is going. So just to take a step back, you got two rappers in this group: Most Def and Talib Kweli. Most Def now goes by Yasin Bey, but we're since we're talking historically, I'll call him Most Def. Black Star was actually a pretty early project for both of them, right? They both right. came up in the kind of early to mid '90s hip hop scene. I think Talib Kweli had like a stint in Cincinnati um, with, with a group out there. Um, Most Def was, yeah. was pretty much New York based, um, but they came up in this really like, I don't know if I should call it emerging or reemerging, like underground alternative, like, mm-hmm. like super conscious New York scene, you know, other groups like De La Soul. They were the Native Tongues crew. Native Tongues, right. Which um, was like, really well, kind of like descendants of the native tongues basically that was like de la soul like, tribe in that same spirit. Busta rhymes jungle, jungle brothers, brothers. Mm-hmm. but really added to this kind of tapestry of, of kind of conscious new york hip-hop um that i think reached its peak in in 1998 1999 whenever this i think it was 98 when this album dropped so most def and talib Kweli come together for this project this black star project and drop this like I said before, like Earth, to me, you know, as a, as a most deaf yeah, fan, especially, so but as a Black Star fan in general, just an Earth shattering great, great album. album. And and I think like it's not just a great album; uh, it's it, it it's just like a perfect album for for its time, right? Like turn of the millennium, um, hip hop is old enough at this point, what like twenty five ish years, to be studied, um, and and. Most Def and Talib are, are, are scholars in their own right. And it's early, like young enough for there to be so much opportunity, so much potential for hip hop to take so many different directions. And like, I don't, I haven't really placed up until this point, like why, but most Def especially, but I think the both of them are obsessed with this idea that this is a turning point in hip hop. Uh, 
like the turn of the the millennium, the turn of the century, 25 years in, uh, this this is really like a, a moment to be appreciated. And most def a, a year or two later in his debut solo album, Black on Both Sides, starts with this kind of spoken word rant about like, you know, where is hip hop going? Like, what is the future of hip hop? And, you know, it's kind of inspirational. Where are the future of hip hop? Like, you know, it's, it's about us. It's about the people. Yeah. Um, but the same thing happens at the beginning of this Black Star album where like, you know, I think they call themselves real real life documentarians. And I really think yeah, that we know this what is the real life documentarians right. is that. And this is just like an audio documentary about the state of hip hop at the time where it's like self-referential meta in that like they call back to like KRS-One and BDP in, in, uh, in definition. Yeah, that whole um, Slick Rick song. Slick Rick, yeah, right, Children's Story, Children's Story, B-Boying. But then like the production, thanks to high tech, just the rich depth of the, the lyrics uh, kind of reveal this like next, in my opinion, like the next stage of, of hip hop that just captured everything that's happened in the last decade or so in New York and brings it into the the new millennium. And so I think like they accomplished what they set out to accomplish. Like they captured what hip hop was for the past 25 years and then packaged that up and kind of like opened the other side of that that tunnel and, and let hip hop loose for, mm. for the new millennium. And that's why it's one of my favorite albums. On top of that, there's a song on this album, Thieves in the Night, that is not not just my favorite Black Star album, not just my favorite hip hop song, my favorite song of all time. Give me the fortune, keep the fame, said my man Lewis. I agreed, know what he mean, because we live the truest lie. I asked him why we follow the law of the bluest eye. He looked at me, he thought about it, was like I'm clueless. Why? The question was rhetorical, the answer was... It's just, it's just an amazing song. If, if there's any song you listen to, listen to the whole album. Like, I think you should listen sequentially from beginning to end. But if there's any song you should listen to on repeat, it's that one. Like the way that they just we cla- like seamlessly weave in all the the Tony Morrison mm-hmm. quotes that they're doing and like mm-hmm. quoting and references to like important revolutionary you know black literature and t- you know also taking it in their own direction and you know adapting it almost to you know a hip hop song on that beat it's it's truly remarkable you know this album it it comes out as well in the wake of the the murders of Tupac and Biggie, like two of the biggest names mm-hmm. in hip hop at the time and in general, and at a time when hip hop is really trying to find its direction and figure out what it's going to be in the wake of the deaths of two of its greatest heroes. And, you know, it's in this era where kind of the sort of the bling era and the uh, kind of, Diddy type rappers are sort of at the forefront in the wake of their, you know, the deaths of Pac and Big. And, you know, this album comes out as a sort of the leader of the new school of this kind of alternative underground scene that is Afrocentric and conscious and jazzy and soulful, but also like very, you know, still connected to the street and really interested not only in, you know, speaking out and speaking truth to power, but also just making great music at the same time. Both Mos and Talib had their own sort of debut projects coming out like shortly after this album was released. 
they casually each had like a classic monumental hip hop album yeah. in their back pocket <laughs> their, while they were their doing their own duo. Whole, like just crazy debuts. Yeah, because most was gonna about to drop black on both sides. Talib was about to drop Reflection Eternal with uh, High Tech. They connected with each other through Talib's bookstore, Nakiru Books. Um, and kind of just, you know, they clicked and decided let's make an album together as a way to, you know, showcase who we are and, you know, where hip hop, where we think it is, where it's been, where it's going, et cetera, like Ramos was talking about. And, you know, drum up kind of anticipation for our own solo projects that's what honestly was so revolutionary as well about the fact that they did come back together for a new album because it was never planned like this was supposed to be a one-off album you know it was never going to be like oh we're gonna have a whole black star series of albums like it was just this thing we're doing together um and we're calling it black star so we haven't dropped the years yet but i want to say this for our listeners we have their first album in 1998 most Def and Talib Kweli present Black Star. Then we have their second album in 2022 called No Fear of Time, which I think is the title is great too, because it's like, we're not afraid right. that 24 <laughs> years have passed and we're now dropping our second album. And it's, it's kind of the same, like it, it feels very of its time now, but it also feels like that new album, which I wasn't able to listen to until recently because of this whole paywall controversy. Then Nelson, you told us that it's just now yeah, available yeah. on Bandcamp. It Bandcamp. recently came, like they dropped it last year on their exclusive uh, platform on Luminary and just for like the super fans pretty much. And then this year, like not even a whole month ago, I think came available on Bandcamp for streaming and purchase. And guys, I gotta, I gotta confess, I have refused to listen to the album ever since it came out mm. um it's kind of one of those like oh. andre 3000 solo career kind of things where like i'm afraid that it'll like tarnish the legacy in my mind where like black star the black star album was like such a good <laughs> album and like you know 25 years have passed um where like i'm just afraid of listening to it and i just i just it's it's promise the shit is really like quite, quite i understand good. the but see the, then yeah, i downloaded when when we decided to do this, I downloaded Luminary. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the one month free trial. Listen to the album. Oh. It wasn't there, and 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 because they took it off of Luminary and put it on Bandcamp, and so it feels like it, it's just the world telling me not to listen to this album. I do have a question. Are they so? Are they selling it on Bandcamp for like high price? Um, I think like it's like seven bucks or ten or bucks it, or something like that. Okay. Got it, but they're probably getting all of the... Yeah, basically, Bandcamp is like a platform that was created to be more equitable for the artists themselves, because you know how with streaming and like Spotify and Apple and yeah. all these things, like you get a penny, part of a penny right. per stream, basically, which is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, basically funnels all the money from the actual source of the labor, which is the artists to the executives. So Bandcamp was kind of created as a way to directly pay artists for their art. And so people put stuff up, up on, on Bandcamp. They decide their own price for how the work, you know, for what the project's going to be. And then 
you can choose to pay it or not. Right. You kind of um, lose that, that widespreading distribution, but in return you, especially if you're a group that has been able to cultivate your own fan base, you're able to bring them to this other medium where they will purchase your music and ultimately. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you get to directly support the artist and exact, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Bandcamp, they you also get some free streams because it's like they don't want you to have to purchase something that you've never heard before, mm. or you know, never paid. It's very different from the first Black Star album. So for those of you who like are expecting them to do what they did back in '98, I like I think you might end up being disappointed. But I think you know it sort of definitely highlights their evolution as artists and as people like the fact and the fact that the music industry itself has changed drastically mm-hmm. yeah that, since that, you know, that might be it for me it's album. like i don't know what to expect the so the, the the album is produced um i think exclusively if not like mostly by madlib Mad all fantastic mm-hmm. producer Mad Lib uh, just a legend mm-hmm. um but like i'm trying to combine madlib with black star in my head and i just don't know how it's going to sound i'm just afraid it's not the super quirky mad lib that you hear like in his collaboration with jay dilla that okay. jay lib is full of all sorts of quirky uh-huh. mad lib beats um one of which has become a joke in my household this is now we're off topic but mad lib legendary producer he has a collab album with jay dilla called uh, champion mm-hmm. sound jay lib and one of these beats, one of these songs is called Heavy. And it has this beat that goes, <laughs> heavy, 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 heavy. <laughs> and so now whenever like my kid is picking up something heavy, I'm like, oh, is that heavy, heavy, heavy? And he thinks it's hilarious. Anyway, that's my that's my that's Mad Lib uh, sidebar. So heavy, so cold, might want to grab that Pelly already. Is. Can lift it up. Dilladore, Mad Lib, about to pick it up. Get it up. Smoke with me, we man. That's a good one. Yeah, well, if you if you listen, if you remember, um, they Brackstar briefly came together in like 2010, 2011. This was back when Yasin first debuted, like, I'm not no longer going by Mostaf. I'm going by my actual mm-hmm. name, Yasin Bey. They debuted his track on the Colbert Report back when Colbert had his show on Comedy Central. Well, was this the Jay Dilla um, track? No, it was produced by Madlib. Oh, it was produced by Madlib. So okay. fi- fix up. Yeah, if you remember that okay. track. The Jay Dilla track is uh, History. Madlib produced. Yeah, History. That's on um, the Ecstatic. Most deaths, the ecstatic from two thousand. That's a posthumous D- J Dilla beat with. I thought Most Blackstar had come. I thought Blackstar had like ripped a J Dilla beat that was never supposed to be released, and like wrapped over it. Um, maybe that was history. Uh, well, okay, we we need to devote a whole episode yeah, to what J Dilla beats are and are not supposed <laughs> to be used, and who has the rights to those? Because that's like the last. Right. Hundred pages of the Jay Dilla book. Yeah, I've been reading it too. That's a good book. That's it's a really, really book. good. Yeah, I want to get Jami's greatest hits, greatest bars. Then let's go into some of the individual facts about Most and Talib. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you guys said what needed to be said about about Black Star. Um, I'll start off by saying 
I love this album. It's 50 minutes long, but it's there's so much like packed into that, you know, into that 50 minutes. I think it's about 13 tracks, uh, some of which I'll get into here. One thing I did want to point out, Billboard uh, just recently put out their list of the was it top 50 or I think yeah, top 50 in honor of um, this being hip hop's 50th uh, yeah. year. Mm-hmm. So they put out their top 50 list of the uh, 50 best groups of all time. And Black Star is on this list. I They're pretty high, uh, like low up, I guess. They're number 49. Um, 49 but- out of 50. I but they, yeah. they probably got like future ranked out ahead of Black <laughs> well, they hit 48 they hit... is City Girls, 47 <laughs> is Ray Tremord. Oh my god. The, the, this li- I mean, this, this is list billboard is billboard we're talking about. So this is not like a real right, hip hop. Right. I'm forum. I'm not deferring to Billboard as my uh for my go-to hip hop knowledge. Uh although I think they have Outkast at number 1, which I I honestly oh, I would have thought it was I... like Lil Yachty at number 1. <laughs> Pete Rock uh, and CL Smooth are 45. Well, I, I've got a whole problem as well, honestly, with them like categorizing duos and whole groups in the same list, too. Like, it's it feels weird to me to be ranking. It, like, it ignores Wu Tang Clan. But it the t- same totally ignores the, the history of hip hop as these MC uh, DJ duos like right. it just totally ignores the just the origins of hip-hop yeah. and just considers duos and groups the same it makes no sense that makes no sense yeah thank you no yeah that, sidebar but I, there's anyways. you could go on on and on about these like hip-hop publications that <laughs> who knows where uh but i did kind of like their uh their description so i'll just read it really quickly here proud descendants of the black cultural and human experience Brooklynites, most deaf and Talib Kweli stood as inheritors of the grand hip hop tradition. They were also representative of artists rejecting the overt violence characterizing the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac era of hip hop, taking their name from black activist Marcus Garvey and sprinkling references to black music icons like Slick Rick, Erica Badu and Joe Scott Heron. Into their free-flowing bars and rhymes, they broke through with 1998's "Most Deaf and Talib Kweli Are Black Star." The critically adored set was a crystal clear distillation of that late 90s sentiment, presented by two lyrically deft MCs and flow innovators, containing layers that still deliver new insights 25 years later. So I thought that was a pretty cool description. Um, mm-hmm. If you like, if you like old school boom bap rap, backpack rap, whatever you want to call it, this album is for you. There's bars, metaphors, storytelling, quite literally, as shown in the song "Children uh, Children's Story." The song is a nod to Slick Rick's song of the same name. I found this to be somewhat of a sad album. Um, some of the storytelling just from a young black man's perspective and describing things going on in neighborhoods and the needing to break out of that environment and using via, uh, music as a vehicle to do so. But, you know, even, even in some of those gloomier moments, there were uh, plenty of highlights on this album as well. One bright spot being the song Brown Skin Lady, 
an ode to uh, black women. It starts with a skit, uh, at least from what from what I took from it, a skit about colorism and kind of being conditioned um, that if you're going to like a black woman to like a lighter skin black woman, one with good hair, quote unquote, good hair. So I thought that that was that was a very clever skit. The song Respiration, it's a, it's the second single from the album, describing life coming up in New York and just simply surviving. Features a really sick verse from Common, talking about the projects and gentrification. Uh, the song also has the classic breathe in, breathe out. Um, to me, literally seems to be a metaphor for just being grateful for life and surviving another day and ultimately uh, surviving another day so that you can break out of uh, some of the systemic oppression that was clearly going going on at this time. Um, Can I jump in? Yeah. The, the skit you were talking about at the start of Brown skin lady, I'd been trying to figure out where that's from. I found out it's from a movie called chameleon street from 1989, not Uh, familiar, but might have to look it up. Okay. Um, and I also funny. Yeah, yeah that, you were talking about how sad the album is too, and it's like you know this is kind of the real life documentarians thing. Mm-hmm. And when you mention respiration, respiration has an amazing music video, mm. which just shows the artists mm-hmm. in black and white depicted just kind of standing on random street corners. Most deaf literally looks like like a crazy man with his like hoodie <laughs> pulled up against his face. Like it's such a stark yeah. contrast to, you know, the P Diddy, you know, yeah. glitzy, the flashy, big colors, flashy of the time. And it's, it's, it's also a throwback to uh, the message grandmaster flash and furious five. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so many echoes mm-hmm. of that. Let me show you why this city Those is a rough streets. place to live in. No, so so dope. Yeah, and it's like it really captures that not only you know that street, but it's just like living in the city too. Like that, it's a mm-hmm. city track. Like I remember going out in Detroit and like just standing on top of a parking structure, looking out over the city lights and everything, and like breathe in, yeah, breathe out. That's that, like it's a city track for absolutely like, just looking out over and really like embodying that hustle and bustle the song ends with most i think it's most uh saying i'm on the last train leaving in at just an end of like you survived another day you know like now you've safely made it home which you know as a as a young black man that's sometimes you just want to be thankful that that you just made it home safely that day so that i I really like that track track thieves in the night to me, again, just another kind of sad track about uh, just growing up in the city, trying to make a way out, the music business, how execs offer these talented kids these like bad deals, kind of make millions exploiting those with talent who are in need of like fast cash. Mm-hmm. But this this track did contain what I what I'm using for the greatest bars today. So I'll just get right into it. <clears throat> The life is temporary, but the soul is eternal. Separate the real from the lie. Let me learn you. Not strong, only aggressive, because the power ain't directed. That's why we're subjected to the will of the oppressive. Not free, 
we only license, not live, we just exciting. Because the captors own the masters to what we write in. Not compassionate, only polite, we well-trained. Not good, but well-behaved, because the cameras survey most of the things we think, do, or say. We chasten after death just to call ourselves brave, but every day, next man meet with the grave. I give a damn if any fan recall my legacy. I'm just trying to live life in the sight of God's memory. Like that, y'all. Nelson, if you wanna if you wanna kinda detail more about these guys' individual careers, that'd be cool. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, you know, after the Black Star album drops, you know, they each went on to drop their own, you know, solo debut projects as well, with most dropping Black on both sides and Taleb dropping Reflection Eternal, the duo he has with uh high tech who produced a lot of the many of the most iconic tracks on the Black Star album, including uh, Definition and Respiration. They stay in touch and do a lot of work together still, but at the same time go off and do their own, you know, have their own careers as well. They've each had, you know, a number of hits in that time since, whether we're talking, you know, if we are talking about most, he's got joints like Umi Says, uh, mathematics, auditorium, hip hop, you know, these kinds of tracks that, you know, any big hip hop fan, I think will know. Yeah. Can we get a little of this? You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, y'all, let's rock this. You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on. Speech is my hammer, bang the world in the shape, not let it fall. Huh. My restlessness is my nemesis. It's hard to really chill and sit still. Committed to page, I write a rhyme. Sometimes won't, won't finish, finish for days. days. Ah, <laughs> I have to go on. I, I've memorized a lot of these verses, so I'm trying really hard not to just break into <laughs> multiple verses. But yeah, so there's that. You know, Talib. Um, one of his big hits was "Get By." Um, oh, I've got that one. Cute. You know. Produced by Kanye West. I love that song. That beat is crazy. Yeah. And that's it's a good example of like old school Kanye production too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, he had Get By, Two Thousand Seasons, Memories Live with. Um, Reflection Eternal, Miss Hill is another one that got pretty that blew up. Is his ode to Lauren Hill, another person that we've talked about hmm. on the pod. Check out um, episode three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both members of Black Star have also been known for their activism. Both Yasin and Talib have been known to be in the streets, you know, organizing fighting against police brutality, fighting for, you know, the rights of black and brown communities. Late 90s, they were part of organizing efforts calling out the NYPD for their murder of Amadou Diallo. Uh, They also marched on the New York City Hall along with other activists and organizers and artists uh, to demand the withdrawal of the million-dollar bounty, um, which I believe still stands the bounty still stands on asada shakur uh unfortunately and unjustly in 2005 they also held a benefit concert um on behalf you know of 
uh, political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, a former Black Panther and journalist and organizer. Talib, as well, continues to be pretty involved in activism and organizing efforts. He was on the ground for a lot of Black Lives Matter. Yasin, as well, also, back in 2013, appeared in a short film created by the human rights organization Reprieve, where he voluntarily was force-fed in the same method, you know, in the same way that prisoners in Guantanamo Bay are force-fed as a demonstration of how the United States government continues to violate the human rights of folks around the world. And it was very powerful, very harrowing stuff. So, you know, they're both the kind of guys that really put themselves on the line for uh, this kind of work. Most has gone through kind of different a lot of different periods in his career as an artist. You know, he dropped Black on Both Sides, and uh, he also dropped True Magic and The New Danger in that kind of interim period between 2000 and 2009, both of which were kind of had mixed reception because he was sort of experimenting more musically, and, you know, there's a lot of, like, rock-type influence in The New Danger, and True Magic is just kind of, like, a lot of more experimental type joints from him that you wouldn't necessarily expect based on like previous work. So it was received, you know, kind of mixed responses. And then 2009, he drops the ecstatic, which was uh, sort of hailed as a return to form for him. Uh, Auditorium is one of the big tracks off that joint. Uh, really good uh, song with Slick Rick. I got to see him perform it live recently, which was really cool. And Slick Rick. Did you have the eye patch? <laughs> no, not slick. It was Mo. It was Yasin. Oh. Just oh, you just... saw Yasin. That's dope. Yeah, yeah. He, him, and Erica. Oh, man. Yeah, it was an amazing show. I, I, but I won't gush about it too much. Yeah. So then he dropped that in two thousand nine, and you know he also has been involved as well. Like Moses slash Yasin is also an actor, so he's. You'll see him in a lot of different movies. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, he had yeah. a role on Dexter for a season. The Italian Be Kind Dawn. Rewind. Don't forget about Be Kind Rewind. Be Kind Rewind. Well, I also like the episode of House where most Def plays someone with like trapped in syndrome where these doctors are like poking and prodding him and you just hear Mo's voice just like, that hurt. What are you doing to me? And he like <laughs> almost got nominated for, a minute, for an Emmy for that. It's a good episode. Jami had to slide out, so let's uh let's wrap our sick content here. But take us home uh, with the life updates on these guys, Nelson. Yeah, most so he disappeared from the public eye for a long time. Um, post uh, that album, he you know, in two uh, like a year later, he came out as Yasin Bey, which is his chosen name that he is also using now as his artist name and then he just kind of disappeared off the map for a while he was traveling the world for a long time and then has only recently came back into the public eye like within the last few years he started doing more features and stuff and then he got involved again with um talib and longtime collaborator with the two of them dave chappelle they now have a podcast together Midnight Miracle, which I really enjoy. Um, I think it's a you know very um, 
don't poison. tell our listeners there's a podcast with Chappelle, Talib, and Most Deaf. You know, we need all the okay. we need all the True. ears we can get. But but theirs is behind a paywall. Ours is free. Yeah, that's why we're not on Luminary Spotify already. So that's right. Just we're much more accessible. Just saying. And Talib continued with a pretty consistent, like just dropping lots of different albums. Eardrum, Prisoner of Conscious, I think are some of the the highlights of. Uh, yeah, I like both of those. I like Liberation. Yeah, Liberation he did with Madlib, and Liberation Two, which he also did with Madlib, and that dropped like this year, I think. Mm. And then eventually, you know, that kind of coalesced into the new Black Star album, No Fear of Time, which dropped last year. To some controversy, not because of the album itself, but more just because of the, how they rolled it out. Similar to the Midnight Miracle podcast that they have with Chappelle, it also dropped exclusively on this platform called Luminary, which is an Apple-sponsored kind of platform mainly for podcasts. And so everybody thought it was kind of weird, like, why are you dropping it on this platform? Like, this is a podcast thing, it's behind this paywall, like, there's a subscription service you have to go through to get to this album right uh and basically you know they responded to the controversy basically by explaining how this is a very messed up business model with streaming services how they have you know they're meeting out portions of a penny per stream to the artists who are the actual source of the labor and you know all the money instead goes to the spotify apple music execs everybody you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so they decided you know Let's we want a deal that's fair that's going to have the money go directly to us instead of you know adding in all these middlemen and executives and according to them they made a really good deal with Luminary and you know um, something that was fair to them and something that they hadn't experienced before through the major label system and they decided to you know just release it through that and if you want to hear the album go through there and if you don't feel like it's worth your time then that's fine too and you don't have to listen if you don't want to was their kind of argument with it it's it's probably Um, better because it's reminiscent of jay-z and his streaming platform title i don't even does title still exist but like i remember one of the still exists oh it does okay i remember i think he got a lot of flack for releasing some of his stuff only on title and but with him, it was just kind of like, oh, I own this streaming platform. So, of course, go there. And I want the dollars. And it's better because it's Black-owned and artist-owned. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But I don't know. I, I buy it a little bit more with most and Talib, who are not quite as transparently in it for the, the dollars as someone like Jay-Z was. And what... Good thing I brought this up because one of the most famous lines having to do with Talib, Jay-Z on Moment of Clarity, if skills sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli, like the homage from Jay-Z that his bold claim that if he weren't so money minded, he would rap like Talib, which I am not Mm -hmm. sure I buy, but is... It's the compliment that Talib deserves. For sure. And he, I think Talib, he responded to it in one of his own tracks. Yeah, I pulled um, that. And I yeah, don't... in Ghetto Show. Yeah, if lyrics sold, then truth be told, I'd probably be just as rich and famous as Jay-Z. That's right. 
That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Let me just spit a couple final facts. Then I really gotta gotta get out of here. Things I didn't know until researching for this episode. Mostef is the oldest of five siblings. Talib is the younger brother to a man named Jamal Green, who is a professor of constitutional law at Columbia Law School, graduate of Harvard and Yale Law School, who was clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens. So we got a hip hop sibling clerking for SCOTUS. I was trying to get him when I was in law school, I taught a class called hip hop and the law. I was trying yeah. to get him as a guest speaker. Jamal um, Green. And then, yeah. And then I was trying to get him to invite his brother and do some sort of collab. <laughs> um, but the pandemic hit and it never worked out. Oh, uh, man. Dang. But I apologize publicly to Jamal Green for trying to use you to get to your brother. <laughs> I'm sure he gets it all the time. I also want to just highlight quickly this story I found that Yassine, during his kind of laying low years in like 2015, 2016, was living in South Africa, where he overstayed his visitor visa. I'm not here to endorse visitor visas and temporary limits on staying in countries because I believe in freedom of movement. But I also think that Americans of all stripes just have this kind of double standard where we don't let people stay here for long periods of time. But we're Americans, we can go around the world and stay however long we want. So he just stayed too long in South Africa. And he was also charged with possessing not a real passport. He had what's called a world passport, which is something created by an organization called the World Service Authority. That's like this like international org that's very into freedom of movement that creates these world passports that ostensibly should get you anywhere, but only like a handful of developing countries actually recognize the passport, such as Togo, Mauritania, Ecuador, Zambia, and Tanzania. So like most people, this passport is worthless, but Yassine Bey had one, and that was how he was kind of trying to live and travel in and out of South Africa. And around this time, when this issue was going on, Yassine announces his retirement from acting and music. He, in 2016 or so, he puts out the statement saying, I am yeah. retiring. And everyone's like, what? And then he continues, very much not retired, to put out music and to, to star and stuff. So it was like, everyone's like, what was that about? Mm -hmm. But some have guessed that this faux retirement announcement was to avoid South African immigration consequences for working without permission <laughs> in the country. And that perhaps if he was just a retiree living in South Africa, he wouldn't get in hot water. But no, he is definitely not retired, but I believe no longer lives in South Africa. Just leaving you with that yeah, tidbit. I mean... False, false retirements are kind of a, a tradition in hip hop. That is know, true. Everybody, everybody's got to do at least one. Vladdy didn't though, because the new Black Star album you know, grapples with these themes of the passage of time and how do we deal with this changing landscape? Mm -hmm. How do we preserve our own artistry while still being able to take care of ourselves and remain somewhat commercially viable in order to okay you've sold me I'll, I'll listen to the album it's good we love um, peer pressure i'd say you know some of my highlights are so be it which is like a very really just like yeah it reminds me of like a kind of old school 
Mad Lib, like something he'd do back in the day with MF Doom, like the almost comic book kind of vibes. Mm. Like there's mm-hmm. this one, um, you know, Yasin's rapping, um, the liars and the saps, the poses and the hacks, laying my main line, you spine goes snap, bay, van, glorious, phantasmagoria, et cetera, et cetera. And like mad lib adds the sound of like a spine snapping <laughs> and when yasin says your spine goes snap and it's like crunch you ain't clean up your act you act like crack ha. i've been a lot and i will never be that i got the right and exact and a trap for the rats the liars and the saps the poses in the hacks land my main line spine goes snap it's great stuff and they're just trading bars uh talib goes really hard on supreme alchemy the, the voice distortion that Madlib does on it adds this kind of almost old school feel of like you're hearing it from like out of a old school radio. This song also has one of my favorite lines in the entire album where he goes, um, when you know your self-worth, you give thanks for your fellow greats, celebrate escaping from the industry to get away, seeing the same type of fate that turned Dumoulet to Metal Face. And I was like, dang, is that really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry, on a quick side note, side tangent. I want to, on a hip-hop tip, give a shout-out to MF Doom, who we just recently got a cause of death for. Hmm. Um, and turns out the hospital he was in in the UK, where he had to go because he was having a bad reaction to some medication, was not giving him proper care, was not paying attention to um, his condition and doing the proper reviews that they should have done. And because of that, we lost a legend. So I wanted to highlight the fact that the healthcare systems worldwide, not just in the United States, treat people of color badly, especially black folks. And we lost a legend because of it. So just damn, we're inevitably going to do an MF doom episode because of his immigration saga. So we'll have to get the whole scoop on that. But I think that's all we have time for today. It's been real as always signing off. This is the white whiz. I'm out of here. Got to go take a whiz myself, to be honest. Ha ha. Ha ha. Our dude circa 2008. Our dude. <laughs> and this is Nelson the Mayan. Thanking y'all for listening. And in the words of Yasin. Every week. We done survived and thrived where others have died in bed do or die. Do is what I did. So we that's what we do. You just heard an episode of Fear of a Border Planet, a podcast written, produced, and edited by the hosts, Johnny, Carrie, Nelson, and Ramis. Please subscribe to Fear of a Border Planet on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, check out our Fear of a Border Planet playlist on Apple and Spotify so you too can listen to the music discussed on the pod. Fear of a Border Planet does not own the rights to any music featured here, so if you're a studio bigwig who does own the rights, and you believe our inclusion of the music is not fair use, please send us a politely worded cease and desist. As always, the views expressed in this pod are solely those of the hosts and our agreeable listeners, not any of our employers or the feds. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Catch you later.
Is this any better? Wait a minute. I'm getting some like Yeezus type industrial <laughs> static from you. Yeah, so it was Carrie. Yeah, that was very Yeezus Yeezus intro. <laughs> 